Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill. And this is a podcast about all the dumb things that people will do for love. So welcome to episode 175. I can't believe we're on our 175th episode. <laughs> Can I tell you? seems sad. <laughs> <laughs> like, should we start back at one? <laughs> Would that make us sound, seem cooler? <laughs> I will what say that doing? like every, every time I listen to, you know, every time when we, I'm putting Max to bed and I'm putting on an episode, I try to like skip around so that I'm not bored. And, uh-huh. uh, since since the beginning, we've been like, I can't believe we're still doing this. <laughs> we we're on ten. We just keep going. I know. Just, and you keep listening. That I think we've said that like eighteen episodes. <laughs> I know, but I mean, one seventy five just sounds serious, right? It sounds serious. It's really, fucking because serious. we're we're serious podcasters, baby. You're right. We are. Um, I want to know. I feel like you you guys, the listeners, would probably be the best people to tell us this, but what are things that we say all the over time. and over and over? Yeah. Cause I don't think that we are like conscious enough of it. Like some things I'm sure mm-hmm. are we, but like, what is a thing that we say all the time that you guys uh, really notice? And cause I know I have that with podcasts that I listen to a lot and I will sometimes like then say that thing and nobody else understands that it's a reference to like this niche podcast I listen to. Right. Right. Um, but anyway, so if you if we say anything, if let us I know. had to, I would think, let's get into some quickies. I think we say that a lot. <laughs> I think I say ay 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 a lot. You do. Say, I've started ay, saying ay ay ay. Max has started saying it because I say it now. Oh really? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> At least you haven't picked up my Madonna Mia yet. I don't think I do that a lot. On no, podcast. but my daughter does says it now oh um, that's funny she picked that up from me it's, I, I, it's funny because i could pick up her um that i could pick up i hear myself in her like when yeah. she's like like yelling at my dog or something you know and she's like ruthie yeah. <laughs> like when she does the, like yeah 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 Marona Mia, and i'm like she says it to the dog and it's like i could totally hear myself in yes her like frustration and i bet bet, Mm -hmm. like there are things that your mom said to you that you now say to your that's exactly it like yeah yeah that's those words those exact words were my mom's words yeah 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 you guys put on me (laughs) Uh, like that's those are my mom's oh my god that i got that from my mom oh my god Can't just, just like the circle of life, you know. Yep, yep. Yeah, what does this Max say? Anything that you say? He, d- I can't think of anything off, but I do. There are some times where I'm just like, oh my god, you're just a little like you're a little me, and like he Aww. did. He where he says things that like yes, that I say to him, and he'll say I'll hear him saying to someone else, and I'm just like, oh man, yeah. Man, we can't help it. Did but- I ever tell you about <laughs> when I was a kid? My mom used to always say. um, 
that my room looked like a bomb hit it. Like uh-huh. so, she would always like, oh my God, your room's so disgusting. It looks like a bomb hit it. Your room's so dirty. It looks like a bomb hit it. And I thought that bomb hit it was one word because she said it so fast. <laughs> and I thought that it meant something like gross or like not, not good. So I started calling the kids in my neighborhood. I'd be like, whatever, it's such a bomb hit it. <laughs> And like, you were like a trendsetter. Jackie, you're a bomb hit it. And then they started saying it. And it became like a word on my block was bomb hit it. And it bomb makes hit no f- it. Yeah, bomb hit it. <laughs> and uh, it picked up. Yeah. Get out of my face. There's such a bomb hit it. <laughs> so Caroline. Always been a trendsetter. She's the real trendsetter. That's right. Everything can be traced back to yeah. her. Everything totally. cool about you. Caroline. Caroline. <laughs> mm-hmm. Caroline. Uh, well, if we if we look like if I don't know if you guys are watching the video of this, um, I mentioned uh, last week that we are putting up we're putting up clips so you'll if you're following us on social media, which you should, um, you'll be able to see clips of our face, um, clips of the episode, and then eventually we'll put like full not full episodes but like parts of more of episodes on YouTube so you'll be able to see us. Mm-hmm. talking because apparently people like that i don't know yeah no, no. i don't but if you have been watching it you might notice that we are wearing the same clothes as last episode yeah and that's because we're batch recording um because i have to go to a work conference this week which is crazy in your job just fucking up the podcast left and right <sighs> i know it is this is i think the first work conference I have gone to since, um, I don't know, I was like 23 and went to like, like, I'm like, I don't what what do I do? Like, I have to give, I'm like presenting things. Here's what you need. You're going to need Reebok sneakers. You're going to need a briefcase. You're going to need a really smart suit, skirt suit. Skirt you know, suit. And then you're going to have to find your nearest hotel bar. Oh, okay. Yeah. I will definitely you're going to be exhausted. That. You're going to be so tired. I'm going to need to find yeah. a lanyard and yeah, uh, with lanyard. my name tag and I will wear it at all times, no matter where I go, whether I go to a restaurant nearby. I just want everyone to know I am there for the conference. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Always be wearing your badge. That is that is the, the key. I was exactly. like, I think I need a blazer. You do need a blazer. And I'm going to need you to send us a picture of Blazer Sally. Blazer Sally. Yeah, conference Sally. (laughs) Just like looking exhausted and harried and schmoozing, glad handed. Yeah. Uh, Unbutton like the top two buttons and like really just let loose at the end of the day, you know? Uh, Yes. I will. I will definitely, definitely remember to do that for sure. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's right. get into our quickies. Let's do There's it. a thing we say all the time. Let's get let's into let's our do quickies. It. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm going first this week. Another thing we say all the time. Um, <laughs> my story this week comes from an article for WTHR 13 written by um, – Staff. What do you know? Oh, staff wrote it. <laughs> uh, Thanks, staff. It turns out Thomas Rank of Avon, Indiana. Have you ever heard of Avon, Indiana? 
I don't think so. Me I've neither. been most places in Indiana, and I don't yeah. know Avon. Well, this October, Thomas Rank of Avon, Indiana, said I do to the love of his life. But it wasn't just an I do. It was an mm. I-D-E-W. He i dude. He married a bottle of hard Mountain Dew. Good for him. Good I for didn't him. Really, <laughs> there oh, was never, hard Mountain Dew, but that that's makes what I was total just gonna sense. Say. Yes, that is the kind of thing that should be a hard something, right? Right. Like, you should if only you're gonna harden something. <laughs> <laughs> like really do do the do. Exactly. If, if there's something, if there's a soft drink that needs to be hardened, it's a Mountain yeah. Dew. So I guess apparently there's hard Mountain Dew, and of course it was a publicity stunt that was on behalf of Mountain Dew. They asked oh, people boo. to, yeah, yeah, boo. yeah. I like these when it's just people who really love a thing marrying. Yeah, it. I am not in it for the publicity stunt. Well, he says that he really loves it. So in late August of this year, Mountain Dew said that they made a proposal for all the single ladies and men who drink hard Mountain Dew. And they said, uh-huh. do you love hard Mountain Dew enough to marry it? And then Thomas Rank said, here you go, Sally. This is in the article. This is this in me. This mm-hmm. is in the article. He said, absolutely. No. No. <laughs> no. You don't no, like it. I you don't love like a it. pun. Absol- absolutely. Because um, <laughs> that is so, not a pun, man. <laughs> not a pun. <laughs> so him and some other uh, – that is not a pun, I guess. Um, so him and some other fans had to write personalized wedding proposals sharing their love story, but explaining why them and they and Hard Mountain Dew will spend a lifetime of happiness together. And apparently he had the most epic proposal and he um, his prize – that he won was the um, Mountain Dew flew him and his can of hard Mountain Dew to Las Vegas to get married in the iconic Little Vegas Chapel. Mm-hmm. Um, it included one of a kind rings that had a tab of from a Mountain Dew can <laughs> on top of it. <laughs> oh man, whoever put this together just was like, I love my job so much. Let's this go is for the it. most fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally. And so in addition to the wedding festivity, festivities that they threw, um, Rank, uh, Thomas and one of his friends got to fly to Vegas and got free travel and hotel accommodations for two nights in Vegas. And then they had um, a paid for wedding reception at one of Vegas's top clubs. And then they got $1,000 in cash as a wedding gift. And of course, a lifetime supply of hard Mountain Dew. Or until hard Mountain Dew stops being a <laughs> yeah, that's thing, what I was which gonna is say, probably until... like in six months. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, so, within a year. I, I know. Put, I'm going to put my money on, like, this is yeah. going the way of the four loco. Like, this is totally. not, <laughs> not yeah. sticking around. But it's pretty awesome, and you could actually watch the wedding video, which I'll try to post um, online. Yeah. It's just him reading to the can, uh, his <laughs> nuptials to the can. His vows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Uh, I mean, I don't like I mean, that, you know, I don't like that our weird weddings have now been co-opted and commercialized, but that's kind yeah. of you know? I mean, that's just <laughs> life these days, but yeah. Um, I don't uh, I don't blame him for going for it. I mean, no, a free trip for to him. Vegas. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. I'm, <laughs> good for this guy. Um, 
Absolutely. I love it. Absolutely. (laughs) All right. So my quickie comes from humansoftumblr.com by Ben Oxier, and it is a good old-fashioned listicle. So you know how we love love stories about friends? Yes. Okay. Like friendship stories. Friendships, yeah. Right. Do we also love the flip side like, so this is 15 Enemies? stories. Yes, 15 stories of the worst kind of friend betrayals. So, Ooh. yeah, so someone on Reddit Eesh. asked, what's the shittiest way a friend has show you, shown you they weren't really a friend? Okay, so, and here are some of those stories. So this one is um, from a Reddit user called IU, uh I can't even pronounce this. This is from a Reddit user. They say, when I was in college, a close friend from high school called me in a panic saying his girlfriend was just discharged from the hospital and he needed to go take care of her. When I say close, I mean every weekend together, called each other's mom's mom. We had a really tight, small circle of friends. So of course I went to help. I had spent all day at school and all night working dinner at a restaurant, but in an emergency like that, sure, I got you. I drove 40 minutes to get him, then an hour to her house. He's trying not to panic the whole way. When I pull up, the bedridden girl who needed round-the-clock assistance was sitting on the curb smoking a cigarette, then bounces up and says, give me a hug, fucker. I very loudly and aggressively made it clear what a piece of shit he was for lying about this. I made sure he oh, knew he that he- Oh, he lied? Yes, like, that he, he- I just assumed that the girlfriend lied, but I guess- No. Oh. Yeah. She said, he. I made sure he knew- that he traded our friendship for a ride to his girlfriend's house. Then I drove an hour home, and except for acknowledging him at his brother's weddings, we haven't spoken since. That is so <sighs> fucked up. Yeah, That's the kind of shit that a lot of times people do to those that are, like, closest to them because they think that, like, surely they'll forgive me for this. You yes. Know? It's, like, it's like how you're worse to your siblings – because you're like, well, you gotta love me. So right, right, so right. So I have yeah. a feeling that he probably really thought that his friend was gonna forgive him. Yes. Um, but nope. Sometimes people just can't be pushed like that. Yeah. So I offered to pay everything and even pay for her time off work for my best friend to come to my wedding, but she didn't. It was a really small backyard wedding and I didn't have any bridesmaids, nor did I want anyone to spend money getting dresses, blah, blah, blah. I just wanted her to come. The excuse she gave was works. And so I understand. I understood. But later I found out that she had lied and planned a trip with her other friends. I still don't know why she didn't want to come. We were friends for over 10 years. And although it wasn't the first time she had really hurt me, it was the last. Oh, that's horrible. Isn't that horrible? Yes. I mean, I don't know. You're so dumb Mm. when you're young. (laughs) You're so thoughtless and so self-centered. I mean, that's even even pretty bad. Okay, this one is kind of – I'm curious, like, what you think is, like, behind this. Okay. Um, Okay, so I had a very close friend in high school. She moved to Alabama for uni after we graduated, but we kept close. When she came back, we didn't talk much, but I still considered her a close friend. We went out for coffee about two years ago. She kept asking me about my life and my goals, and I said I was happy where I am. I coach gymnastics, and my boyfriend and I will eventually take over his family farm and start our own family. Sounds like 
an amazing life. Yeah. Um, she texted me two days later and said, hey, so my entrepreneur friend is hosting a workshop. Do you want me to sign you up? I said, no, thanks, but thanks for the offer. She then texted me so clearly we are on two different – we are at two different points in our lives. You have no goals or ambitions, <gasps> and I don't want this kind of negativity in my life. I wish you the best. And oh my I never God. spoke to her again. That's horrible. Isn't that horrible? Like, what do you need your friends to have ambitions for? You know what I mean? Like, right? you love your friends for being your friends and for who they are. Like, what do you need that their successes for? Or you know what I mean? Or if she's happy the way – I mean, her yeah. life sounds great. Her life sounds great. She That's has a job. So she's supporting herself. She oh. has a plan. Like, what – I don't know. I do think, like – like some of this, I'm just like, I that's that that's crazy. That's just it's not like, like a she crazy was like a person. drug addict and was like, you know, harming herself or something, and she didn't want to be around that. It's like, right? What? That's weird. <laughs> you don't oh, want to participate in my uh, what entrepreneur friend workshop, which sounds like it's probably like multi level marketing. You know? Oh yeah, for sure. Okay, so, okay, after 25 years of friendship, I announced to my best friend that I was moving to the city she was in. I had a great job opportunity and felt like it was an awesome time to make a big life change. I was so excited to tell her I could hardly wait. She flatly replied with, cool. And when I asked her what parts of town I should look to live at, she stated, I can't help you. You should just figure it out when you get here. We never had a fight, had been close for our entire adult lives, and I continually helped her in all aspects of her life without hesitation. To this day, I cannot tell you why she started treating me this way. Long story short, we live in the same city and haven't seen each other in six years, and I'm quite sure we live minutes away from each other. I will prob never know what happened. I bet you that that friend thought that she was so fucking cool and special for living in New York City or wherever. Uh -huh. Did it say yeah. New York City? No, it or, just said the or city. Or just a city. Mm -hmm. And then when her friend wanted to do it too, she just couldn't handle it. I think she just wanted to be the special one, you know? You think so? See, I it's yeah. funny because I had a different instinct is oh, that yeah? the best friend – was ashamed of her life. Maybe she had lied about where she was oh. or what she was doing. And then when this person said they were moving in, she just got like, oh shit, and thought it was like easier to cut her out. Oh, that could be. That I mean, totally it's all like be. a narcissistic, you know, weirdo, but. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Definitely there's something wrong with this person. But it's like, I just remember that like, I remember when people were young, like in high school and college and people doing their – going off to this college or that college or this city or that city Every and everybody wanted their own identity and their own thing. Yeah. And do you remember like that time period where people would get mad at each other for like, this is my thing. Get your own thing. You know what yes. I mean? So like I just had this feeling that like maybe she was like this is – moving to the city is me and my thing and yeah. I, you can't – copy me, you know? Yeah. Uh, this, um, I, so I, I, I've told the story before on the podcast about, um, how I have this guy that we used to all be friends with his grandpa's ashes. <laughs> still. Right. Um, but the reason that I had them is because the guy, so I, I won't say names, but the guy who, who, it was two two of our friends were moving to New York City. They were both comedians and they were gonna live together. And so, but they were gonna first like crash on like friends' couches for a couple weeks while they found a place. 
And their plan was to live together. Uh, that was like they both put their stuff in the same storage unit, which is how the grandpa's ashes ended up there. So everything was in the storage <laughs> unit. They moved to New York City together. They were crashing on different couches, different friends. And then the one friend just completely disappeared and ghosted, changed his number, never answered another email. Wow. Like never – like within the weeks was like, no, I'm – and quit doing comedy – like all of the things, just like still lives in New York City and never, ever talked to this the other friend again. Isn't that crazy? Like no yeah. explanation, no like, hey, it's just I don't want to live together. It's not going to work out. Just like. God, that's weird. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? And so then we spent like years trying to find him. He like went out, got off all social media, like just completely disappeared. And that's why we couldn't find him because his grandpa's ashes were in the other friend's um, storage unit. But he would never respond. So that's wild. Yeah, it's wild. I'll do uh, one more. Okay. Um, okay. So had one friend that bought a t- bunch of tickets for a midnight movie premiere for myself and our entire friends group, about 15 of us. Day of the show, he texts me and says he forgot to buy a ticket for me. I ask, what do you mean you forgot to buy my ticket? Of the 15 you bought, how is it my ticket you decided yeah. wasn't purchased? Turns out he did buy a Are ticket they assigned? For me. Like right, <laughs> he, he included in the t- fifteen he bought, but he just met a girl the week prior and decided to give my ticket to her. Mm. So our entire friends group went to the movie minus me. There's other things he did to me as well. We're no longer friends. Aww. Yeah, I mean, it good. sounds that like, sound like a good friend. No, all. like sounds like a super thoughtless friend, and also kind of like fuck the rest of your friends. Although maybe they just didn't yeah. know contact. Yeah, they might not have known. Also, was it sold out? I mean, it must have been. But that's I weird. Guess. Anyway, <sighs> so there you go. There's my quickie. That was a dick move for sure. It was a dick move. And I'm sure that person picked the one person that he thought would probably be most likely to forgive him, you know? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they had like some history and then didn't want the new girl to see his old girl or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe I just have a thing about people shitting on me because they think I'm going to forgive them. (laughs) You know what, Sally? This reminds me of – People that shit on you because they think you're going to forgive them, but you don't. This has nothing to do with my personal life. (laughs) They think you're always going to be there, but you're not. And you'll show them one day. You're really going to stick it to them. (laughs) (laughs) But first, we're going to give them one more chance. Just one more chance. <laughs> no more Mrs. Nice Guy. <laughs> oh. Jen? Jen is different. She's changed. <laughs> Projection. Um, well, that was a good quickie. Good yes. one. Can't yeah, go wrong with too. a listicle. <laughs> hey, Sal. Hey, Jen. Are you ready for the crazy story this week? Yes. What do you got? Is it good? This is a good one. This is a good one. I'm excited. Um, It's wild. So this story I got from an article for WALB.com written by Krista Monk and an episode of Snapped Killer Couples. Ooh. Mm -hmm. And it happened right here in Georgia. All right. I love a hometown. Yeah. (laughs) Georgia May Green grew up in Baker County on Baker County, Georgia on a small farm. And she was born to a very large family. Um, She had nine other siblings, actually. 
It's a big it's family. It's a big family. So it was one of those like quiet farm towns where there was just like children playing everywhere because mm-hmm. there were just so many kids in the neighborhood and everybody was close and yeah, you know, so many siblings. She grew had a pretty simple farm life, you know. Yeah. Um, in her twenties, she gave birth to two daughters, Ramona and Rhonda, who she ended up raising on her own. Um, and for a long time, it was just the three of them, just her and her two daughters. Friends described her as a, a strong woman. She was very religious. She was a um, strong woman. She was a strong. <laughs> that's how I want to be described, right? As a Jan. strong woman. She was sturdy. <laughs> she was <They're> loyal. Sturdy. <laughs> She had woman. She had good haunches. <laughs> good what? Haunches. Haunches? Who's yeah. a hunch? That's like your <laughs> size. <laughs> Are you like my haunches? Yeah, she's um, like a good base. She's good got base. very sturdy woman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Um, so she was a strong woman. And I think uh-huh. what they meant was, you know, <laughs> emotionally. Okay, uh, fine. <laughs> and she was very religious because she was brought up in the church and her face, her faith, not face, mm-hmm. her faith was the most important thing to her. Um, yeah. So she brought her daughters up in the church as well. And then she actually started preaching in her living room. She would have her family over and she would have like church at home. Uh, I mean, because they have a pretty big family. They've got a church right there, you know. Sure, why not? I guess they call it. DIY. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So through church, she met her second husband, Luke Griffin. Um, uh, She became a pastor, and they said that Luke called himself a pastor also. Those are just Mm -hmm. like – that's a quote from the show. And he – called himself a pastor also. So I don't know that they were pastors or if they just called themselves. Is that well, a thing you, that you can call yourself and you just if are If you make your own church, you have to get, like if you're like, yeah, I mean, right? If you're like, I mean, I am you- Father Jen Misty. <laughs> so I get it. And I'm Reverend Sally. Yeah. Oh, wait, what's a band? Reverend Reverend Heat. Sally Heat. Sa- yeah. Sally Horton Heat. <laughs> Sally Horton Heat. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so, and Georgia, so she was a pastor. Um, and so she started doing, um, yeah, she started doing uh, marriage counseling and spiritual counseling. And um, mm-hmm. she actually called herself a healer. So she would have people over to her house mm-hmm. and she would do spiritual work on them, which isn't any different from like no offense to like my 15 friends that all call themselves Reiki healers. <laughs> <laughs> well, they probably got some kind of certification. I mean, honestly. <laughs> I don't know that they did. I could be wrong. I don't know. No offense. I think like I will say I believe in it. I believe like it works for other people, but the one mm-hmm. time that I tried it and gave it a shot, that's it. Yeah. Just say, <laughs> but my niece, who is like such a no nonsense, you cannot yeah. work my niece over at all. She's got such a good head on her shoulders. She was like, she said, "It works. I've had it done on me. It's a hundred percent real." So I it's mean, funny it's- that I don't believe my forty four year old sister <laughs> or like fifties, <laughs> yeah, and like my seventeen year old niece. I'm like, what'd you say? Okay, I believe you. <laughs> I do. I mean, I'm with you. I'm like, 
Yeah. If it like if it works for you, it works for you. Great. If these these uh you know, I just have a I am I am uh suspicious. Yeah. Uh, of like church healers who are claiming that they are getting their spiritual healing and counseling from God. Uh, right. I feel like that can be very damaging. I don't think going to a Reiki session where somebody is transferring their energy to you is as dangerous emotionally right. <laughs> as right. probably, I'm guessing, what these pastors are doing. But I right. don't know. Who's to say? I don't know the whole story. So, mm-hmm. No, I think you're right. I, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> she would have – people over to her home and she would do spiritual work on them. Yeah. Um, So even though she offered marriage counseling, her own marriage wasn't doing very well. And in 2004, Mm -hmm. her and her husband Luke divorced. So she asked Luke to move out, but he was so still so in love with her that he moved out, but he actually built a house on the property and stayed right behind her and (laughs) like lived right behind her and stayed close to her. So what Um, a nightmare. (laughs) I know. (laughs) And so her daughters also bought houses nearby. And Mm -hmm. so all of them live near each other. So it was like a very close knit community. And what Georgia thought was a safe community of all of her closest like family, neighbors, friends. Yeah. Um, until on Monday, April 24th of 2017, um, police received a 911 call from 35-year-old Ramona Newton. Um, she was calling to report that the house next to her was on fire and the person that lived in that house was her mother, who was Georgia. So yeah, she um, said that she heard a loud noise and that when she ran out to see what the noise was, that's when she saw that um, her mother's house was engulfed in flames. Hmm. She ran around the house two or three times. And on the third time, she actually heard her mother's voice. And when she turned around, she saw her mother laying there covered in blood. Oh. And so, yeah. So she called 911 again because this time she was like, I need an ambulance. Was her mother outside? Yeah, outside the house. Oh, okay. Outside the house. Yeah. Yeah. She called them and wanted to get an ambulance to come. And in the meantime, when they were waiting on the ambulance, Ramona ran and got everyone on the property. Like, so Mm -hmm. she was able to get her husband, Brad, George's ex-husband, Luke. And then there was another couple there on the property named uh, Lenoris and Kim Williams that were by the house. So she called for everyone to help, like, carry her mother to safety. And so uh, when they were told that the ambulance was going to take longer than expected, Luke mm. ended up putting her in his truck and rushed her to the hospital. Yeah. Um, so by the time the fire department had arrived, the house was completely burned to the ground, mm. every bit of it. And so um, though the house was completely burned to the ground, investigators were able to determine that the fire was not an accident or an electrical fire because there was accelerant everywhere. And it was obvious that the fire was intentionally set. Yeah. So who would do this? And who would have wanted to hurt 61-year-old spiritual healer, Georgia Green? Um, Well, so when they sifted through the debris, they did find several knives on the scene. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, who's to say if these are kitchen knives? You know what I mean? They just found the knives. Um, And in the meantime, Georgia was in critical condition and was not able to speak. Um, And they were actually getting ready to transfer her from the hospital that Luke had taken her to to Dothan for – better treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, She was in really bad shape. It was found that she had been stabbed 27 times. And then she also had um, several strokes while she was in the hospital. 
And so she was not expected to pull through. Police talked to her daughter to see if they knew if she had any idea who would do something like this. And she told the police that she had no enemies. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, she did tell them that on the property at the, like at the time of the fire, she did see um, George's ex-husband, Luke. And then she also saw Lenoris and Kim, Kim Williams. And so police, of course, uh, suspected the ex-husband, Luke, yeah. and brought him in for questioning because it was said, you know, that he was still madly in love with her and that he right. wouldn't, wouldn't even acknowledge that they were divorced. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, when um, he was at the hospital with Georgia, police started to question him and he told the police that they were still married and lived together, even though the police knew that wasn't true. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. yeah. And so so he told the police that around 11.30 a.m. he was helping his ex-daughter-in-law's husband um, in his garage, Brad, um, um, in his garage. They were loading up scrap metal, which if you remember, Sally, from an episode, <laughs> a few episodes past, mm-hmm. how valuable scrap metal is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so valuable. Very. So you're, you're an expert. I do remember I, uh, that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were loading up scrap metal and then they said that they saw some cars in George's yard and that after some time then they saw smoke coming from the house and Brad corroborated Luke's story that hmm. yeah he was with me all morning so he was dismissed as a suspect okay and so um so now they turn their attention to this other couple that happened to be there, Lenoris yeah. and Kim Williams, like what were they doing there? Who were they? So they were a couple that had been seeing Georgia for a while for spiritual healing. When the police went to find Lenoris and Kim to uh, question them, they went back to the property and they saw that their car was there, mm-hmm. but they were not there. They had accidentally left their keys in the car. So it looked like they had accidentally locked the keys in the car. And so yeah. they were they must have left on foot. And mm. so they wanted to find them to bring them in for questioning. And they finally found them walking. And they were about two miles away from George's house. Yeah. When police tried to talk to them, Lenoris kept walking and refused to speak to the police and seemed really agitated, mm-hmm. which was very suspicious. Like, why would he, they, he not want to tell them what they saw, especially if he right. was there, like, trying to help her, you know? And so – they were both taken into custody and brought in for questioning. Police sat down with Lenoris. Police asked him why they were there, and he explained that he, he and Kim had been seeing Georgia for spiritual guidance, but that he said he saw another man drive up, go in before mm-hmm. him, and then leave. And he said that it was um, a black male went into the house, mm-hmm. and then he left. And then when he saw the man leave, that's when he saw that the fire started. Mm-hmm. And so he said that he went into the house to find Georgia to get her out, but that he couldn't find her. So then he ran for help looking for Georgia's son-in-law. So he said that they were going to see Georgia because he and his wife of four years, Kim, had been having marital problems. So Kim, Lenoris met Kim, his wife, through social media. They said that he had been um, – they talk about this like – they talk about this like it was a love story. Like he was so in love with her. He was watching her for years. Uh-huh. I'm like, oh, that's weird. So he had apparently – Red flag, found, red flag, red flag. Yeah, found her on social media, had been watching her for years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And they did have a connection because he was friends with some of her cousins. Yeah. So he would see her around and stuff. Um, but then, like, he finally approached her. She had a teenage daughter and an infant son. And then they got together. And a year into their relationship, Lenoris and Kim had a baby together. Lenoris was a traveling construction worker. But after the baby was born, he ended up switching careers so that he could be home and help take care of the children. Mm. And in 2015, um, June of 2015, he and Kim were married um, and he started working at a nearby uh, solar company. Yeah. Um, So everyone said they were very much in love and that they were just like a very lovey-dovey couple, like lots Mm -hmm. of PDA and so in love with each other. But then um, when Lenoris was laid off, um, they started having financial troubles and mm. started arguing and things got bad and it caused a major strain on their relationship. Sorry, can you hear Ruth. me? Ruth. Ruthie. And so, <laughs> so it caused a major strain on their relationship and he really wanted the relationship to get back to how it was before, like very lovey-dovey and yeah. like, where would, where did that go? And I want that back. And so yeah, he well, started – It went, went away with uh, how the we're money, our rent. The money, Like it's hard Stay to want to be all lovey-dovey when you're like, we'll how can we keep out. our heat on? Exactly. So um, that's why ladies always have your own money. Mm-hmm. And then Get it's never an issue. Get your own money. <laughs> so he started seeing Georgia for counseling, for marital mm. counseling, and then also for spiritual healing on what he called uh, root work. I had never heard of this before, and I've heard of all of the crazy spiritual shit. <laughs> Trust me. Uh, so root work is apparently where like uh, it's when someone basically has put a curse on you. Like it's oh, like laying, sure. it's called laying roots on someone. So it's a, um, it, and and then once you lay roots on someone, then you can make them do whatever you want them to do. Is is I guess okay. what the notion is. So apparently he said that his ex girlfriend had put roots on him. Um, mm-hmm. He said that um, his ex girlfriend told him that she was mad at him for marrying Kimberly. So yeah. she took a pair of his boxers. I guess that he had like left it her house a spiritual healer or i guess like a witch doctor or something yeah told her to bury it in her yard with fingernail clippings and menstrual blood and then it would put a curse on him and so he was convinced that that's why he lost his job and that things his relationship was failing was because his Mm. ex-girlfriend had put this curse on him and he was also told that the only way to remove remove the curse was to find a spiritual leader that was more powerful than the person that put the curse on him and okay. then that would remove it. Yeah. And so that's why he started going to Georgia. So they started paying And they were money. like, and let me recommend someone. Yeah. <laughs> I happen to have the card of this woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, this is a person that put roots on you. Uh-huh. Maybe she'll take them up <laughs> if you pay her uh-huh. enough. Yeah, if you operate, so, she operates out of her house. But Yeah. <laughs> I mean – Probably it was the same person. I mean, it's a small town, right? Like, who else? Like, how is many doing people? This kind of shit. I've never heard of this before. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, so I, they started going to her, and they would pay her money. They didn't have that to, money to spend. I know. So they were Jim? paying her like hundreds of dollars to for these prayers and for these like potions that she would make them that was supposed to remove this curse, I guess. I think I'm just too cheap to ever get into something like something like that. 
Like, that's that's why good. I never did Reiki again. <laughs> right? I paid for one time a cut. I for ninety dollars for an hour for someone yeah. to like not even touch me. And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. I'm so like, I, I like that's not. why I've never done it again. Because yeah. I'm, I'm not a gambler. I don't like wasting money in Vegas or mm-hmm. you know at the casinos, and I'm not gonna throw money away for yeah. I mean, I do believe I'm a spiritual person. I do believe yes. in spirituality and manifestations and things like that. But yeah, but I'm I can not do that. Like shit for, for free. free. That's the whole point. That's I'll make you point. a vision board for free. For free. <laughs> so they paid her all this money, but things mm-hmm. didn't seem to get better for them. It wasn't yeah. working. So they started to get really angry with Georgia, and they yeah. felt like she was just swindling them out of money. Mm, and so they felt like that. Yeah. And so when the police interviewed Kim, so he told mm-hmm. this is a story that they he gave the police. But yeah. then when they interviewed Kim, her story was very different. She said that she did go to George's that day with him, but that she had a headache and had taken two Benadryl to sleep off the headache, which mm-hmm. wrong, you know, I'd be proof. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are you taking Benadryl for? Wrong dose. <laughs> Were you itchy? But she said that Lenoris wanted her to take a ride with him to George's house. So she said that she was sleeping in the car the whole time and didn't know what was going on. That's how you yeah. know he did something shady. Like I know. You gotta either back him up or not. If you say you're sleeping, we know that means you both weren't on it. Yeah, exactly. She so sleeping. she said that she was sleeping, didn't know what was happening. And then she said she woke up and saw that the fire saw the fire and was confused. Saw Lenoris coming to her, told her that he was trying to help Georgia mm. get out of the house. And okay. so they asked her about the man that uh-huh. he saw going into mm-hmm. the house. And she said that she never saw another man, that her husband was the only person that went inside that house. Mm-hmm. And then when the police were like, yeah, but you went in the house too, right? And she was like, I didn't go in the house. And they're like, you went in the house too, right? And she goes, he did it. That <laughs> was that quick. That freaking oh, fast, buddy. your husband. <laughs> that you would like – yeah, yeah, commit crimes with or whatever the fuck and like pay spiritual healers to save your marriage. It was just yeah. she was just like, he did it. And yeah, she goes, yeah, he yeah. did that to that woman like that fast, that fast. So right after she said he did it, he did that to that woman. Yeah. She wouldn't say anything else. So they ended the interview there. Um but police ended up getting a search warrant to search her purse and inside the purse they found a notebook. And in the notebook had all these writings about how much she hated Georgia Green. Like, it was just like a a manifesto of, like, how she hated her. And so they also found a receipt for a knife and a roll of duct tape that they bought (laughs) the morning of the attack. I know. So then police were able to get the video surveillance from the store, and it showed that Lenore is making the purchase. Mm -hmm. And also – they saw that the knife that they had purchased was identical to one of the houses that were found in uh, – one of the knives that was found in the debris of oh, right, the yeah. burned house. So when police went back to Lenoris and told them about the new evidence that showed – and then they showed the tape of him buying the knife and the duct tape, now all of a sudden his story started to change. Mm-hmm. Was he like, she did it? She did it? <laughs> kind of. Hold on. Like, yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> so he said that he went to – 
that he did go to George's house, but that he was there to mm-hmm. confront her about all of the money that they paid him and that, you know, why yeah. it wasn't anything improving. He said that when he went to talk to Georgia about why nothing was improving, she told mm-hmm. him, well, you'll have to start the whole process over again, the healing process. And, but with that means you need to pay for the process again and that he would have to give her more money. And so he said that they started arguing and that Georgia, 61-year-old Georgia Green, mm-hmm. stood up and attacked him when yeah. they were arguing. So well, he, she was a strong woman. Yeah, she was a strong woman. What did she have? Haunches. Good haunches. Haunches. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently he said that when she attacked him, he had no choice but to stab her in mm-hmm. self-defense. With the knife he had just bought. Right, right. No he said that he brought the knife and the duct tape just to threaten her, but that he knew he wasn't actually ever going to do anything. But then she attacked him and yeah. he had to. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, mm-hmm. at that point, was swearing that Kimberly was never – Never inside, never had anything to do with it. And okay. in that, and then right away they were like, oh, yeah? And then they played – they're like, well, Kimberly has something different to say. And Kimberly, <laughs> they played Kimberly's confession for yeah. him, showing her throwing him under the bus immediately. Also in the video when she was said that it was him, he did it. She, she said the words, I'm not going to ride this with him. Like I'm like she was like he's on his own. I'm I'm out. And then uh, Lenore, as soon as he heard her say the words, "I'm not going to ride this with him," he goes, "She stabbed her." And so then he throws her under the bus. And so the police knew that that she knew everything that was going to happen and that she was definitely involved. He told the police that um, she was the driving force. She was the one that planned everything Mm -hmm. and made her do it. And he was so in love with her and he didn't want to lose her. So he went along with Kimberly's plan. And then, of course, Kimberly said the exact opposite. So they were both arrested for attempted murder, but they still – police still don't exactly know what happened because their stories are so different until on May 8th, which was eight days after the attack, Georgia woke up. Oh, good. Yeah. Because she she was a strong woman. She was a strong woman. So she (laughs) woke up, and then two weeks later, she was ready to speak. And so, um, yeah, so the police interviewed Georgia, and she told them exactly what happened. She said that Lenoris and Kimberly stopped by the house after church and Mm -hmm. said that they wanted (laughs) – um, that they just wanted to see how she was doing. You know, mm-hmm. and she was. She said, "Well, um, you know, you really can't be here right now. Thanks for checking up on me, but you know, I'm not really wanting visitors." And yeah. she said that Kimberly was si- silent and didn't say anything. And you know, Lenore said all of the talking, and then all of a sudden, he jumped up, grabbed a bowl that was sitting on her desk, and then hit her across the head with it and started screaming, "Where's my money, bitch?" And then Kimberly immediately jumped up and then started stabbing her. <gasps> Yeah, and so Georgia then fell under her desk and pretended to be dead while they were going through the house and ransacking it looking for money and everything. And then finally, uh, Lenoris told Kimberly to grab the gas. I guess they Mm -hmm. brought gas with them. They started pouring it all over the house and all over Georgia. Oh, my God. And so they started the fire and then left the house. And then Georgia just miraculously was able to pick herself up and get out of the house. And then when she got outside, she said that she just laid there silently because she didn't want them to hear her until her daughter found her. 
And so oh my God. Uh, Lenoris and Kim Williams were both indicted for aggravated assault, attempted murder, and arson. And on January 26, 2020, one day before his trial, uh, Lenoris pled guilty with what's called a blind plea, which is when he's not promised anything for his guilty plea. But oh, okay. um, but if, uh, if he agreed to a full detailed account of what happened and he, he said that he would testify against Kim- Kimberly, it mm. was just in the hopes that the judge might take leniency on him for right. coming forward and saying that. And so the very next day when Kim found out that he did that and that he was going to testify against her, she yeah. did the same thing. Because she yeah. knew she was screwed. So she pled guilty. So they were both found guilty and each received 40-year sentences. Um, it's still debatable who the driving force was. Right. Snapped, of course, always being very sexist. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> was like, I, well, we see her notebook, so. Yeah, they were like, it was, of course, like an old way, uh, you know, police officer like, mm-hmm. oddly, you know, she, he, she drove him to it. He loved her right. too much and <laughs> she just made him. And it's like, <laughs> I think they were both fucked up, but I, you know what I mean? It's yeah, just yeah. like, snapped is always so quick to paint the woman as the, yeah, the like murderer. I mean, she was the person that stabbed her. I mean, right. but anyway, um, they're both, they're both guilty. They're, they're both, both guilty. Guilty. So Kimberly Williams is scheduled for release in 2052 when she is 72 years old. And Lenoris Williams is scheduled for release in 2047 when he'll be 63 years old. And while Georgia lost her home and she has some disabilities due to her injuries, she otherwise made a full recovery and is doing well. And she's still counseling wow. people. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. That yeah. is amazing. Yeah. I'm so glad that she survived. Me and, too. Yeah. I mean, she was a strong woman. They were yeah. right. They were right yeah. to describe her that way. I, you know, her friends described her that way. And I'm they also right. happy that, like, she had – obviously, she had such, like, a really good relationship with her daughters that they want to live on the same compound and that they were there to save her. Yeah. And her ex-husband, too. Yeah. <laughs> He's yeah, still I mean, there. <laughs> still there so. still there uh well so. that is a crazy story that's yeah a crazy story i just mm-hmm. i will never get over how people can be like like you're so religious that you will go to a spiritual healer you will go to church but then you will also then be like give me my money bitch and stab someone and, and burn murder house a person down. and like kind of in the name of all of that like it's like yeah, and like you're so religious and spiritual, and then also you're it's all in the name of like how, like because you love this person so much and you don't want to lose them, and you like yeah. you would kill for love, and then you they always without a doubt throw each other under the bus immediately, the second, <laughs> immediately. The second that they're given the chance. It's just like, oh my god, yeah. some people are just, uh, I don't know. At some point, we need to like, um, compile all the lessons we've learned on this podcast but i will say one that we have learned over and over is like don't go murdering with someone because they are no. gonna throw you under the butt. don't i don't care how much you think you love them don't kill for someone don't kill with someone because there is no loyalty yeah no way world. that person will never stand by you <laughs> that's just that's just a lesson just a lesson <laughs> also know. if you're gonna like make it look like a robbery actually rob rob. something that's yeah that's our those are our lessons yeah um well that was a good story good job good job 
Hey, Jeff. Hey, Sal. Are you ready for a love story? Yes, I need This one. one is wild. It's a bit of an up and down, but not too much. But it is it – is cra- it's like almost unbelievable, but it is true. So I got my information from uh, Reader's Digest, from the LA Times, and from the Chicago Tribune. James and Anne McDonald were married in 1960. They bought a little house in Larchmont, New York, which is a suburb of New York City, in 1963. Um, They were both a little older when they met. They were nearly 40. Oh, Um, my God. (laughs) So gross. Disgusting. Uh, (laughs) So they didn't end up having children. But Mm -hmm. Jim was from the area, but Anne had actually grown up in County Cork in Ireland But from all accounts, they loved each other very much. They lived this quiet, happy life. They were – was filled with friends and family. Anne's sister had moved to Larchmont to live nearby them. And Jim's mother and his family all lived nearby. And Jim was – he was the foreman of mail carriers at the post office. So he had been a mailman for 25 years. And so he knew everybody in the town. Everybody said he was a gentle, soft-spoken man. Nobody had a bad thing to say about him. So during February and March of 1971, when Jem was 50, he had a kind of crazy series of accidents, like nothing that was um, critical, but Like the combination is kind of crazy. So one evening when he was carrying the garbage out, his steps were icy and so he slipped and he bruised his back and he struck the back of his head. And then a few days later, he, when he was driving to work, he was had a sneezing fit and he lost control of the car, <gasps> hit a telephone pole and banged oh his God. forehead against the windshield. Yeah. And then the next day he was at work um, and I think from the car the car crash, he had like a dizzy spell at work and he went down. He fell down a flight of steps. Oh, my God. Um, where he it again like banged his head. An ex-girlfriend put roots on him. Right? Does he know where all of his boxers are? <laughs> right? Well, oh, and then God, that's terrible. Ten days after that, he again was in his car, lost control, and hit a pole. Oh, my um, God. Yeah. And so he was actually – that time he was found un- – he was found unconscious in his car and he was hospitalized for three day with a cerebral oh, concussion. Right. So it was just like this one after another, after another, he's having all these head injuries. So then on March 29, 1971, Jim borrowed friend's station wagon and drove to JFK to pick up Anne's brother and family who were coming over from Ireland for a visit. So he took them to Anne's sister's house. And when he, Came back, he returned the borrowed car to the friend at 10 p.m. And he didn't realize that when he got out of the car, he had like this leather folder. This is a leather folder. I'm guessing it's like a billfold, but like containing his identification and um, his ID and stuff had slipped out of his pocket and onto the floor of the station wagon. And the friend was like, hey, I can give you a ride home. But Jim said, I have a terrible headache and I'm just going to walk. I think it'll help clear my head. And so usually the walk from the friend's house to his house would have taken 15 minutes. So that was about 10 p.m. At 11.15, Anne called the friend who had the station wagon and was like, do you know where Jim is? And the friend said, no, he left an hour or 15 minutes ago. So at 2 a.m., Anne eventually called the police and reported her husband missing. So after 24 hours, the police sent out an all-important 
all points bulletin began um, because it was 1971. They started writing letters to Jim's friends and family, like to be like, hey, have you, is he with you? Have you seen him? They followed. Yeah. So they followed every tip. Um, They checked, they called the morgues in New York. They called every hospital. The detective, Jim Molokai was assigned to investigate and he actually knew Jim because they were, they went to the same church. And so you know, he was like, I can't imagine Jim Madonnell, I know, to to leave on his own. And he was like, with his, with all of these head injuries, the thing that they thought was like that he had had like amnesia or concussion or something had happened and he wandered off. So Anne's sister said, for weeks, Anne walked around the house, wringing her hands and praying. She agreed that Jim could be a victim of amnesia and she worried about his health. Anne was sustained by her deep trust in God. She felt that one day he would provide an answer. So for years, Anne remained alone in the house waiting. There was no sign of Jim. She often dreamed he would come home and then, or dreamed that he had come home and then she would wake up and find out that he wasn't there. Pretty soon after Jim's disappearance, when Anne realized he wasn't coming back, she didn't have a job. So she realized she had to earn a living. She ended up taking babysitting jobs. Um, She was a supermarket checker. She worked in the hospital cafeteria. In 1977, she got a job as a nurse's aide, and that's what she did for the rest of her life. She actually decided she would work in the hospital on holidays because she said it was easier if she kept busy. Um, But through it all, she had faith that Jim would return. She actually kept his clothes in the closet at just as he left him, his razor and his can of shaving cream were in the bathroom cabinet. Aww. The theory was that Jim, because of Jim's head injuries, he had had amnesia and wandered off. But because they had never heard from him, they figured something had had to have, have happened to him and he probably was dead. So actually in 1976, five years after he disappeared, Jim was officially declared dead. But for Anne, she said there was always a glimmer of hope that he might come home. And for that reason, she actually stayed in their same house that they bought just three years after they got married. And in the phone book, she had it listed under his name, like Mr. and Mrs. Jim McDonald, so that he could find her if he ever came back. Then, Jen, on Christmas Day in 1985, 15 years after he disappeared, oh my God, got a knock on her door. She was fixing a late breakfast. She wasn't expecting anyone. She had just returned home from Christmas Mass, uh, where she had lit candles and prayed for Jim. There was uh, snow falling, and she was in a hurry to leave for Christmas dinner at her sister's before the roads got bad. And she opened the door and there stood a man with a long beard. And he said, hello, Anne. And it was Jim. Oh, my God. I know. And so she said, when I opened the door, I said, oh, my God. The first glance, I didn't know him at all. He was a real Santa Claus. The second glance, it's him. And I tell you, it was really something. It was just like a miracle, really a miracle. I trusted in God and had faith that God would someday answer me, give me an answer to the story. So what happened was in March of 1971, after all of the car accidents, all the falls, uh, Jim said he got a headache, as he said, walking home from his friend's house in Larchmont, and his mind went blank. The next thing he knew, he was in Philadelphia. Oh, my God. He had never been to Philadelphia before, and he said he didn't know who he was. Did he, like, hitchhike or – He has no idea. 
He has no idea. He just, he, the next thing he realized, like he hit his head. The next thing he realized he was in Philadelphia, but he didn't remember any of his life before then. He just found himself on the streets of Philadelphia. And all he knew was that his name was Jim. So he saw signs um, as he was walking, saw the signs of a man named James Peters, who was a real estate agent on a bus bench. And so he adopted James Peters as his own name. He said it never occurred to him to like seek assistance at a police station or hospital. He just, in his mind, he was like, this must be how I always have been. So he ended up getting a social security card, which like at the time you could do without showing a birth certificate, you could just go in and be like, I need a new social security card. So he got a job at a luncheonette of a health club. He worked at a cancer research institute cleaning out animal cages. And then he got a night shift job at the PMP luncheonette as a as a cook. And he became well-known at the luncheonette for his omelets, his good humor. Everybody loved him there. So after a year, he ended up quitting his cancer institute job and working full-time at the PMP luncheonette, which is where he worked um, for most of the time that he was gone. He made new friends. He joined the American Legion and the Knights of Columbus. He was actually an active member um, at the Catholic Church. He said his friends there said he never talked about his past, but they didn't they didn't really pry. One time a friend said to him, from your accent, you must be from New York. And Jim just replied, I guess so. So he like ended up, he was like It's so weird is how you can like forget your whole life but still keep your accent. Right? That is it's, yeah. And also that you could forget your whole life and then just be like, I just need to keep going. Like I just yeah. I'm not gonna like try to figure out who I am. I just need to like keep, you know, establish a life. This woman, Cheryl Sloan, who was a waitress at the PMP, said that Jim was special. She said he loved kids. At Christmas time, he played Santa Claus at orphanages. He grew a big white beard, which is why he had that beard when he showed up at Anne's house to make his appearance more authentic. Of course, we wondered about his past. My mother decided he had to be an ex-priest or an ex-criminal. This woman, who was also a waitress at the at the luncheonette, Bernadine Goloschowski, said, Soon after Jim started at the PMP, I took a job there as a waitress. My father had died, and Jim apparently had no family, so we adopted each other. He became my father figure, and we, my husband Pete, our four children and I, were his family. The children loved him. Apparently, Jim spent every holiday with Bernadette, Bernadine and her her husband, Pete. They said about a month before Christmas 1985, they noticed that Jim had grown unusually quiet and subdued and that something seemed to be on his mind. So on Thanksgiving, he was at their house because he spent holidays with them. They were watching the TV and Pete, her husband, said there was like a mail carrier on a rainy day on the TV. And Pete said, boy, that's one job I wouldn't want. And Jim frowned and looked at him and said, I think I used to be a postman. Oh, wow. And they said, really, where? And he said, I don't know. And they're like, New York? And he was like, I don't know, but I think I remember my parents a little. So that was like the first kind of remembrance he had of anything from his past for 15 years. On Christmas, he also spent that with Bernadine and Pete. And so on Christmas Eve, he usually always arrived late because he visited all of these families and would go to the orphanages and play Santa. 
And so that Christmas Eve in 1985, he never arrived. And they stayed up all night waiting for him. But on Christmas Eve morning, Jim had gotten to work at 7 a.m. He was changing his clothes in the basement of the luncheonette when he hit his head. (gasps) He like stood up and hit his head on like a doorway. And the owner of Luncheonette said, I think you should go home. That bump, you know, is really like the skin was broken and he was like kind of out of it. So she actually, the owner drove him home and so that he could sleep. And then the next morning, he says on Christmas Day, he said he woke up with memories of his earlier life. That is so wild. Isn't that wild? He immediately (sighs) took a bus to New York and a commuter train to Larchmont which is where um, where he and Anne lived. He got off the train. He looked in the phone book and looked up his wife's name in the telephone book and found that she was still living at the same address. And before he went home, he visited a, the cemetery to see his father's grave. And that was when he learned that his mother had died. She'd actually died in 1972, about a year after he disappeared. Oh, God, that's horrible. Yeah. So – He said that he then walked to his house. He came up to the door. I knocked. She opened it. She couldn't believe it. She had never given up hope. She even had all my my clothes there hanging in the closet and everything. Oh, she's a great girl. (laughs) That's what he said. Uh, She had faith that I'd be back. We looked at each other in amazement. She still didn't believe it was me. And Anne said that through the years, she never gave up hope that her husband will return. She said, nothing could change my mind that the disappearance was the result of his accidents. There would never been a body found. I felt he must be alive. I was hoping that he was going to come to himself. The whole answer would be that he had to find himself. So on the day after Christmas, Jim went to the police. He reported his return. He called Bernadine and Pete and told them he was fine. And then they called all of Jim's friends in Philadelphia with the good news because of course now they're worried because he's disappeared from Philadelphia. So all of his friends in Philly were stunned, but happy for him. Everyone there just had such glowing things to say about him. Yeah, uh, They were like, he had all friends, no enemies. Another person Aww. who worked with him at the PMP says a kinder man you'll never find. If someone was sick that day or the next, he was at the hospital to see him. Aww. So after a week after his return, Jim had a complete physical, including a CAT scan of his brain, and they found that he was in normal health. Um, Doctors said at the time that what happened was probably a mixture of like the brain injury and then also like psychiatric, you know, like because his brain was like protecting him from all of that. So, so they, or they just don't know really, like there was no, nothing like this actually has been reported before. And so a lot of people didn't believe it, but the timeline of like exactly what happened, like everybody, um, you know, either he's like the best pretender in the world or, you know, this is really what happened. Yeah. I so, mean, why would he pretend that? Why would like just disappear for that yes, long? Yes, exactly. And just then have a normal life there. And then, yeah. Yeah. So Jim and Anne had no problems resuming their lives as a married couple. Jim Aww. said a year after his reappearance, every day we are together makes the time we were apart seem shorter. Uh, the two remained married for the rest of their lives and passed away in 1999 and Jim in 2007 at the age of 85. Oh, wow. Isn't oh, my God. Crazy wow. story. Yes. That is yes. really crazy. Yeah. Oh. I mean, that's like the stuff of movies, right? Absolutely. I think there, was, there actually was a movie. There's not a movie it. about it. There is? there is a movie. I can't remember the name of it, but yeah. 
Oh, good um, researching. Like it, so yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> I'm wow, that's really crazy. Yeah, mm, that's so yeah. scary. I mean, it's it's like I'm glad that they found each other and lived happily afterwards, but it's so scary. Yeah, that, that your life can change like that over a silly accident. You right? Know? Yeah, yeah. Brains are crazy. Um, is, that's true. Yeah. All right. Well, um, let's do something dumb and something we love. Okay. For something dumb, something I love. So I watched this movie. Uh, it's one of those things that I had. I kept falling asleep during it. And it's yeah. not that the movie's bad. It just took me three attempts to finish the movie. It's called The Triangle of Sadness. Okay. And um, <laughs> it's really, really good. It's great. Yeah. And so I want to recommend this movie. It's it's just another, like Woody Harrelson's in it. He's great in it. Yeah. Um, uh, it's just one of those, um, it's another, I feel like it's a trend right now is like all these like White Lotus, all these mm. commentaries on and satires on like the absurdism of rich spoiled people and like yeah. how you know it's so anyway it's really funny and it's really well done and really well, well written but there's the something down there is i don't want to give away the movie but i do want to if you let warn people that there is a very long difficult scene to watch it is like a 10 minute like turn this off if you don't want me to spoil it for you. But I would yeah. have liked this warning yeah. before okay, because I'm off. very sensitive to this. <laughs> yeah, there's okay. like a ten minute puke scene, vomit <gasps> scene, like a, a like a mass puking. Yeah, that goes on forever. <laughs> I, I like I literally had to just like walk out of the room and been like and like listen for like is it done yet? Like it yeah. went on for so long, <laughs> and I like I'll be affected by it for. A while. Yeah. So um, I just – that's the something dumb. So I just wanted to warn people before you yeah. watch it. It's like it's very intense. But after – before and after that, it's great. great. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, so for my something dumb and something I love, um, I don't have much dumb, but I just – I have work has been crazy. I have like a huge report due and then I have this conference this week that I just am like – yeah, just – I just have – you know, just being crazy busy is is dumb. Stressed. Yeah. I'll be really happy when this week is over because then I will like have two giant things that I've been um, just working really hard on that will be done. Um, And then the thing I love is also is a book I read. Um, It's called, it's actually was on like the best, you know, all of like the top lists like a couple years ago. It's called Writers and Lovers um, and it's by Lily King. Uh, She wrote Euphoria. And anyway, it's really great. It's really, I think it probably actually like really hit me in a right place because it's about, um, it's about writing. Um, and also she is is struggling with like losing her mom. So I just, I cried Mm. so many times during the book, (laughs) but it was like really, really good. Like I was up, um, the other night to like two in the morning, just couldn't put it down. Oh, wow. Just reading. And you know me, I love to go to bed at night. So that's crazy. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) I was reading with my eyes. I read uh, it with my eyeballs. Crazy. It's crazy. crazy. So that's how good it is. I really enjoyed it. All right. Well, there's our episode, you guys. Yeah. We, yeah. we did it. We did it. We did it. 175, 175 in the books. Guys, reach out to us. We're all over the social media. 
Um, you can see our faces uh, and all sorts of stuff. Pictures from the episode, all on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. We're all at Dumb Love Podcast. You can email us. We would love your love stories or love to just hear from you. If you have any quickies you'd like to send us, send them, send them on over to dumblovepod at gmail.com. Rate and review. Tell a friend. We'd love that. We would love that. Do all of those things and don't forget to get out there and do something dumb for love. Dum da dum 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 da dum da dum da dum dum da dum 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 dum